It's gold, the hottest club in the subcontinent. This movie had everything. Nazis, Buddhist monks, shirtless men, and just when you think it couldn't get any better, they started singing. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm drinking champagne out of a teacup. <laughs> and, and I know I am, why. And I am dancing around my house uncontrollably. <laughs> are you showing your abs? Definitely not. <laughs> that is not something you want to share on film. <laughs> Well, we are alluding to our movie of the uh, quarter, I guess you could say. It's movie club week, so film buff Fran is back to talk with us about our, our first non-English language film, Gold, The Dream That United Our Nation. Take a listen. Fran, welcome back to talk about Gold, a movie about India's 1948 hockey team. Walk us through this one. Well, thank you for having me back, Allison and Jill. Gold, yes, it is. It's about um, the 1948 Indian field hockey team. It's about how the team came from being part of the British Empire and having so much success as a British Commonwealth in the Olympics and then kind of coming into their own and becoming their own country and their own team and, you know, beating all the odds to become number one at the Olympics. So remember Stefan from Saturday Night Live? And he would always talk about the clubs. So so I came up with a Stefan description of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> My husband will be thrilled to hear this. It's gold, the hottest club in the subcontinent. This movie had everything. Nazis, Buddhist monks, shirtless men. And just when you think it couldn't get any better, they started singing. <laughs> good one good and, one and all the sports movie tropes every single one of them oh completely it had the infighting and it had the against all odds and it had the breakup of the team and the redempt the coach redemption story right the rich boy who has to learn how to be a team player and the poor guy who has to learn how to trust <laughs> And I loved everything in this movie. <laughs> so did I. Oh, it was fantastic. It was so much fun to watch. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. I got to say, I'm really glad we chose this one. It was kind of like, you know, I had, I think I was the one who recommended it because I saw it somewhere and I'm like, oh, this is an Olympic movie and it's totally different and it's foreign and it's just, you know, something different. Now, had either of you seen any Bollywood films before? Yes. Yeah, but like yeah, random yeah. and long time ago. I have never seen a Bollywood film. So this was, I'm watching it. Oh, it's nice. And then 45 minutes in, they do this production number. Yeah. With choreography. With this crazy choreography. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this movie has suddenly become like a mixture of the Mighty Ducks and High School Musical <laughs> and Passage to India all put in a blender. 
and served as a Punjabi cocktail in a teacup. And I loved it because when Jill and I were first talking, we we said, oh, my goodness, it's over two and a half hours long. Mm, It's long. But it has these at least three or four major musical production numbers. Mm -hmm. And I did not even think it was that long. Like, I just got caught up in the story and the acting and everything that was going on and trying to figure out the history of what was happening because it, it not to mention like what was true and what wasn't true, but mostly trying to just relate to this idea of what happened during this time with India's independence from Britain and the partition of the country and people moving to Pakistan because they were getting persecuted in India and just all of these ethnicities trying to get along on one team that just was all very fascinating to me Mm -hmm. right the history is vaguely familiar to me i certainly didn't know any of the details other than obviously they were a british colony they became independent there was the the india pakistan partition and i know probably indian audiences got a lot more out of it but i didn't feel like not knowing the details of the history took away from the film. I think I got enough of it. And actually the scenes related to the partition were amazing. Right. When you Uh just didn't realize how much people hated each other. And very well done. Really dark. It was very shocking. I thought that was the most shocking part of the movie because I just didn't, I didn't anticipate that coming. You know, and then all of a sudden there was this huge conflict where one of their players is basically stalked and going to be killed for being a Muslim in a Hindu country. And it was very scary to watch, you know, and I was hoping it came out okay, which it did. Spoiler alert. But, you know, that was very, it, that was very effective. I was, I was truly shocked and saddened by the thought that, you know, they had all these wonderful players and all these wonderful people coming together. And then all of a sudden it's just ripped apart and his whole life was pretty much destroyed. Um, luckily, his children and his wife survived, supposedly. I mean, in the story they did. And and he was, you know, he went on to become the head of the Pakistan field hockey team and and lead them to, you know, wonderful success at the Olympics as well. But At the end, though, I felt it was kind of sour grapes that he didn't get to be on the team with, you know, the other Indian players because, you know, he would have so enjoyed. I mean, I'm glad he was in the in the stands with them at the end, but I would have loved to seen him on the field celebrating with them as well. Right. And that's the character MTS Shah Mm -hmm. who uh, moved over to Pakistan and uh, played on the Pakistani team. So the film starts I love this. They start in 1936. Correct. In the Berlin Olympics, and they're competing as British India. And we have this random Hitler appearance. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, wow, we are are starting with Hitler. This is amazing. (laughs) And I have to say, that was the tallest, skinniest Hitler I have ever seen. (laughs) And it was, and, you know, we were talking about all the, um, the tropes and it was sort of the, you know, the typical Nazi salute. And then Mm -hmm. the Germans are incredibly racist against Mm -hmm. Indian players. 
And I'm like, wow, we are starting here. This is this is going to get interesting. Oh, the officials weren't calling anything against German officials, you know. But I I gotta say, it really showed one of the key players in the movie, and his name was Samra, and he was the leader of the team from 1936 who really gave it to the Germans and led his team to victory back then. And I mean, he was like a movie star. I mean, he just shone on the screen. I mean, he was just so fascinating to watch and he really drew me in. And then when, you know, the movie continues and they go through World War II and they realize that they're really not going to have an opportunity to play for a number of years. And finally, the manager goes to him and begs him to lead their team, you know, in their own country now. And he and he says no. And I'm like, oh, no. You know, he's out of the movie. <laughs> and that actor is, this, when I was reading about the movie, the film is packed with Bollywood superstars and sex symbols. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the guy who was Samrat, the guy who was Himat, they're all like sexiest men in India. And they had them take their shirts off for no reason whatsoever in this movie. <laughs> Like, why are we taking off our shirts? And then when I read, I was like, oh, all these guys are sex symbols. I'm like, right. Okay, and they had six pack abs, man. Trust me, I'm not complaining. <laughs> but you know what? I'm not it was, detracting. It was very neat. It was very poignant of them to start in 1936 because it kind of, it, it started the film and it started kind of showing you the deep rooted, feelings of these people saying, you know, I don't want to play as someone else's squad. I don't want to see their flag up on the flagpole at the Olympics. You know, I want to see my own flag. I want to, I want to have my country have that pride and that accomplishment, you know, and that I think kind of, you know, starting it there and them being the, the winners, but still feeling a sense of, unease and you know not accomplishment because it wasn't being done under their own true flag kind of set the stage for the the movement forward in the movie right because there somebody like a couple of fans had tried to put an indian flag on the team bus and got a pulled away and beaten up by the police at berlin and the team's like assistant manager tapandas got the flag and he kept it inside uh, his coat so that nobody would see it and then just used that as a symbol to spur on the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they delivered. And then Topon was the one who, after years of war and rumblings of independence in India, he was the one who wanted to put the team team together again or a team together again and say, you know, we need to realize this dream. The Olympics are coming back please, Hockey Federation, let me put together a team. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting to watch this movie right after we had read uh, Abhinav Bindra's book, Mm -hmm. where he talks so much about the corruption of the Indian officials and the the people getting payoffs, and there's no money for sport. And Mm -hmm. that was all a part of this movie. So I right. said, oh. I said, oh yeah, Mr. Metti and Mr. Wadi and the the Parsi gentleman and just that whole <laughs> dynamic was in this movie, and we knew it was based on reality, even though there's very little of this movie that's based on reality because mm-hmm. we had just read the book. 
So that yeah, timing yeah. for us, it was like we planned it. <laughs> <laughs> so smart. But that just added to, and obviously the Indian audiences would recognize all those stereotypes and caricatures mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. away. So, you know, so the movie goes on and, you know, we see kind of the the assistant manager, Mr. Tapandas, kind of go into a depression and an al- and kind of fits of alcoholism and pretty much down on his luck. And then he realizes once he sees a paper that says, you know, hey, the Olympics are definitely coming to London in 1948. And this was about 1946, where it picks up after Berlin. And he says, well, this is this is the sign. This is us. This is we're going to do this. And it was it was really interesting seeing him kind of weasel his way into the club and get in, you know, get to the powers that be and convince them, you know, based on, you know, his earnestness and his just the way he was able to schmooze with these money guys, you know, to say, look, I I know I'm a drunk. I'm, you know, this low life. You've heard a lot of rotten things about me, but I know hockey. You know, and I'm going to I'm going to be able to do what you need to do to accomplish the goals of getting the gold for India. And they actually let him do it, which is great. So much of this movie reminded me of Miracle. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. In that we had the um, put upon yet patient wife of Top and Das, <laughs> which we also saw in Miracle. We had this team from all over the place coming together correct and that scene that we saw in miracle where he made them do the skating drills Uh right we had basically the same scene in this movie with the bricks right with the bricks and i'm like wow this is but this has music in it That's what this Disney coach is singing to me. I want her Brooks to do a singing number <laughs> I next think time. Brooks could have pulled it off, frankly. He, have. he totally could have done it. But yes, yeah, so when we were talking about the tropes, so even then, as Top and Das goes to put the team together, they show him the travel montage of him <laughs> yes. going all around India, finding you know the prince and the policeman. And one is Hindu and one is Sikh and one is Muslim and they're Mm -hmm. pulling them all together. And yet, even with all those tropes, it worked. It worked. It worked. It was a feel good movie. Let's face it. It it didn't feel saccharine or fake. No, no. Even with the train going across the map. I mean, it was every (laughs) cliche. It was very Indiana Jones, kind of. (laughs) Temple of... <laughs> the Temple of Doom, kind of. They took yes, on there. yes. <laughs> Here comes Indiana Jones swinging across the field, right? And you had uh, it, like the the girlfriend or potential wife yeah. who you know was very sassy, uh, but just line like, was left undone. I'm assuming he gets the girl in the end. Oh, Timot. Oh, yes, yeah. Timot. I, I think so because they were so proud of him being in the final game. He was able to play, yes. Right. This the sweet, innocent romance with Simon, mm-hmm. which was which was very cute. And is every woman in a Bollywood movie just Drop that gorgeous? Towards. Yep. Oh, stunning. Yeah. Oh. And every- I, I would I will say, like, even though Moni Roy had to play the put upon wife 
Manobino Das, and she just was so spunky. You, I thought at the beginning she's going to be like this, oh, you're drunk, you're stealing my jewelry to pawn it and get money to drink, and you're just a loser, and why did my parents marry me off to you? I could have had somebody better. But then she gets really spunky at the end, and or not even at the end, mm-hmm. when uh, Tapan Das is putting together his training camp. He's doing a three-month training camp to... <laughs> put the team together and get everybody in shape for the Olympics because they don't have much time. And uh, yes, and he gets a sponsor and the sponsor's wife is going to man the kitchen and Monobina is having (laughs) none of that. that I love when she had the monks help her cook and she was not happy with their (laughs) their chopping skills. (laughs) And she did not like when he sang to her, he embarrassed her, but my God, was she fantastic on screen. She was great. She was great. Yeah. There was a lot of characters, even though, like you said, Allison, that, they were characters we've seen before, you know, they're storylines that we've seen before, but they managed to keep it fresh and alive and and moving, you know, so it was it was really great. I got to say, I mean, even though it was subtitled and I watched it with the uh, English subtitles, it didn't seem uncomfortable, you know, to watch it like that. I mean, there was some English spoken in the film, but primarily it was in their native language and it was, it was fine. It was really, it was so engaging. You just didn't, it didn't matter. Yeah. There was that quality to it. And I don't know, like I I haven't seen a lot of other Bollywood of, you know, a Mexican telenovela where even if you don't understand the language, you understand what's going on because it mm-hmm. was all the tropes mm-hmm. and it was this very broad brush kind of story. It's oh, and what? I had another note about the Bollywood. The first time they did the drinking and the and the Hollywood, the 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 the, the Bollywood number, I wrote in my notes, feels like Boz Lorman meets Bollywood. Like Moulin Rouge meets, you know, mm-hmm. a Bollywood number. And I'm like, did they call Boz to you know give them a shout? And it somehow made so much sense. Mm-hmm. These musical numbers, obviously, it's it, it just I don't know why. But <laughs> suddenly, they would start dancing at the party, and and drinking champagne out of teacups. Right. I don't understand. Well, they had to pretend that it wasn't alcoholic beverages. I know, but. And I love that that the prince and Hamat were making about guzzling the champagne. And Mm. I knew I wasn't getting the joke because they were making a joke about Bengali and Punjabi and and obviously all these different Indian regions. And yet I got the joke Mm -hmm. because it was it's such a universal people from different regions insulting each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the characters were, you know, the, the rich prince and the poor policeman who had been forced to be a policeman and these stereotypes. And yet, I and I think it's with the the magnetism of these Bollywood actors, mm-hmm. they didn't feel like stereotypes. They felt like much more flesh and blood, fully realized characters. Correct. But speaking of like the, the tropes and the stereotypes, I, at the and I was, uh, well, okay, so we had the prince, oh, and and also the fact that people were taking their clothes off for no reason. The <laughs> prince 
was taking Tapan Das back to the train station and they stopped in the middle of the road yeah. because the prince saw a poor man sitting beside the road and he slowly gave him the clothes off his back and his watch and his tie and every everything except for his boxers. <laughs> and, and Tapan just asked, why didn't you give him your underwear? And he said, well, I might need it later. <laughs> That's in handy. But the way he took off his clothes, I wanted them, you know, done on <laughs> the music to come back on. But he just wouldn't pass the ball, though. He was so giving. He would not pass the ball. He wanted to be the, the star. He couldn't let that go. Had to learn to share. He couldn't share. Just he like was the, the poor boy had to learn to trust his teammates. But do you think that Tapandas should have just asked the really rich prince for the money to train? Why yeah, you would think that happen? Because I'm like, you have a prince. I mean, I'm assuming he's very. He seemed very wealthy. Wouldn't he volunteer? But then you wouldn't get that fantastic scene where the Buddhist monk. <laughs> Breaks his five-year vow of silence. <laughs> Say Samrat. <laughs> oh, the other thing that I forgot to mention that was also fantastic in this movie, the facial hair. Yes, very good. Samrat's mustache was mm. absolutely <laughs> on point. That was as sharp as a field hockey stick, that thing was. <laughs> Don't you love how nobody aged between 36 and 48? Yeah, they looked remarkably well taken care of. It's like nobody aged at all in that 12 years of war and revolution. You know, and the other thing I noticed that there weren't a lot of people anywhere. Like, I would have thought, like, the streets would have been crowded. But I don't know when the population explosion was that gave us over a billion people in India. In general, I thought it did not look like the 40s. Mm. Oh, okay. That in general. So the number of people, just the feel of it was definitely a Bollywood 1940s. You know, the, this, the clothes, the haircuts, the, you know, they stuck the right cars in, but it didn't, that's mm. my one sort of quibble with it. It was kind of like an MGM Mm -hmm. version of 17th century Scotland. It was mm. this, you know, very produced. And that was true also when they went to London or even in Berlin. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like I was there. It didn't feel, you know, because we, we've read about London in 48 being the austerity games and certain, and there was no mention of that at all. Mm -hmm. Of that, you know, there being food rations and there being all these difficulties and the the village wasn't particularly comfortable. That was all left out. The scenery was beautiful, though. Gorgeous. I mean, I wish it wouldn't have gone by so quickly, like because they would just do like mostly with the train montages and going diff to different places. And some of the scenes were so beautifully photographed. And I almost wanted to say, well, where is that? You know, because I would love to see it in person. I mean, if it exists. Yeah, I don't think it actually looks like that. I don't know. <laughs> there are people there. But it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Yeah, everything, the people, the scenery, the costuming, everything was just a little too clean and perfect. Sanitary. And, yeah. yeah. But I said the same thing about Miracle. Mm -hmm. Right. But it yeah. didn't look like New York in the 70s. But, mm -hmm. but, but the one thing that 
did seem realistic in terms of cleanliness and sanitation and things like that. When uh, they were driving all the supplies on a horse and buggy to mm-hmm. the, the monastery and they hit the hole in the middle of the road mm-hmm. and then they couldn't get it out. And that's when Top Gun fig- or actually Top Gun's trying to push the wagon mm-hmm. out of the rut. And his wife finally says, take your shoes off because you won't slip. And lo and behold, wouldn't that come back later? <laughs> he had to know that. He had to get that realization. I was so disappointed to find out there was nothing about shoes in the Olympics. No. And did you know, I, I in some of the things I read, that the Indian team actually practiced on grass that would be like it was in London uh, to get a better feel for what the, the situation was going to be. Which so I there was, was really no, smart. so there was no. Oh, this team wore cleats. Where this team? Oh yeah, no, not okay. Honestly, you can count on one hand the number of things that were true about this movie, <laughs> yeah, and, and one of them was going to be like there was an Olympics in 1948, and, and they won the gold. India didn't win the medal. Yeah, there it that's is. about it. That's yeah. None of the characters. They're all sort of loosely based on Correct. actual right. people. Yeah. And the, the 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 history that was happening, yes, uh, you know the backdrop, right, was actually true, and that's why I think going back to the scene about the partition, where Imrat is is attacked by the mob, was so moving because you know that actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, even Muslims who had fought in the Indian independence movement and had lost family members and had suffered were attacked and had petrol poured over them mm-hmm. and had their lives threatened and had their families killed. I gasped when they poured that petrol. Mm-hmm. Oh, me too. I, I was I was shocked. I'm like, oh, this is taking a dark turn. Yes. <laughs> Bring on the music. Don't do this to me. <laughs> and the one thing I didn't look up, and I'm actually curious, is what the relationship was between the Pakistani team and the Indian team in 1948. Mm-hmm. Because obviously now... It's many years later, we've lost that people who actually lived together, you know, the, the, the years that passed mm-hmm. so that those families who had to move in either direction and that horrible splitting apart is so different now. And yet would, would those two people have been able in 1948 to embrace each other or was the animosity already mm-hmm. there? Right. Yeah. Or did they all just blame the British? Oh, another great trope. Perfect. <laughs> oh, the evil British. The <laughs> racist British aristocrats. Who are going to fix oh, totally. everything. Oh. Totally. It was great. And it was just this wonderfully worked in casual racism. Like, oh, yes, the British are the villains. We're just going to, you all know this part. We, we don't even need to go that far. <laughs> I, I was like, why aren't they twisting their mustaches in the corner? Um, that was great. And, and I was just happy that Samrat got to come back and and be the hero and be the the person who brings this new exciting team back together and and really, you know, bring it home for them because that that made sense. Right. You know, of course, who are they going to turn to? But their one true champion that all these kids, you know, when they were little and heard on the radio the 1936 Olympics and you know, this player who's also an amalgam of 
another player or so, you know, from the the true 1936 team, you know, and just hearing these, you know, these heroes come forward and actually bring that team to, you know, its eventual success was really neat to see. You know, when we talked about Chariots of Fire, I was very big on the truth versus reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually plays into into this film because I bet that 36 team hated when that British flag went up. Mm-hmm. God save the king. And that and and that 48 team when the Indian flag went up for the first time. What a moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That for the whole country, that must have been to hear their own anthem, mm-hmm. to see their own flag, to see all these heroes, and to have won in London. I mean, you can't, you don't need to do anything with that. The reality is so dramatic and amazing and wonderful. And I think that's what they really captured in this film is the joy of that moment, mm-hmm. the whole country coming together and everybody mm-hmm. just saying, this is incredible. So now we're going to break out into an amazing song and dance number mm-hmm. about being drunk. <laughs> but he once again blows it. He keeps blowing it, that top on Das. Until the end Until when, the end. you know, he's in England and he's frustrated with his team and he goes to the bar, he buys a drink and never Just takes a stare at it. <laughs> Doesn't have another drink again. But, you know, what was interesting, too, is that, you know, when Himet what kind of screwed himself up with, you know, the altercation with the prince and the captain of the team, it's almost like I was like, oh, shoot, you know, I thought he was a better man, you know, than the prince. And he he kind of portrayed himself as, you know, he was a jerk, too. You know, he was you know, he was so put upon that they weren't going to put him in. And he just couldn't let it go, you know. But unfortunately, like a part of me too was like, oh, just couldn't tap and das tell him that you know you're our secret weapon. Yeah. Don't worry, you know. Don't don't go down on yourself. You're gonna get in. You know, you're gonna be our star. You know, instead of making him sit there and just feel so insignificant and mad that he couldn't do what he was, you know, sent there to do. And then you could not have the amazing locker room speech. <laughs> you couldn't storm out and then storm back in and say, fine, I, I apologize. I will be the better man uh-huh. and this team. <laughs> and I loved every single cliche. <laughs> I don't know why these cliches work so much better in this format. You know, it is so formulaic and so, like we were saying, it doesn't look like 1948. Everything is so clean. Everything is so perfect and shiny and and buffed. And yet I was smiling through that whole movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the performances and maybe also oh. our curiosity at learning something we didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the acting was just fantastic and they knew how to bring it and make whatever trope you have seem fresh and new and they were all engaged with each other and it just there was a lot of energy in the cast and great chemistry and it just it it worked i mean they can take oh, their shirts anytime they want to and go lift some bricks i am okay with that okay so i have two notes that i i, de- I wanted to look up so badly before we chatted but i just didn't have the chance so did you love when they included the dig about Montbatten? 
in the, in the story. Yes, oh, and I forgot to look that up too. And so basically to those listening, I mean, they, they brought up at one point after they started, you know, showing us about the rift between India and Pakistan and all this change going on and this upheaval. And I forget who said it even, but they, they blamed Montbatten, who is, you know, one of the big figures in, in British history being the Queen's, um, well, being Prince Charles's uncle. Correct. He was the vice warrior of India. So yeah. yes, so well, him being instrumental in partition is historically accurate. Right. And I thought that was really interesting because he, I mean, the way they said it made him like, you could tell that he was completely vilified. And I thought that was a pretty awesome kind of little historical little factoid put in. Um, the whole Indian audience probably laughed. Mm-hmm. Was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, if you made a Nixon joke mm-hmm. in the United <laughs> States, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, that Nixon. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that. No, and, then, and then the other little thing I had was when they were awarded the medal, who awarded them the medal? Was that Prince Mar- Princess Margaret? Was that the queen? Well, she would not have been. Well, Elizabeth would not have been the queen at that point. She would so have been Elizabeth? I, I could have been. I, I couldn't find it. it. I think it was supposed to be. Her. Her. Okay. Because that's what I thought. And I tried looking it up and I just couldn't find the details of who gave the medals to the, the players at the Olympics. But I assumed it was Elizabeth prior to her becoming queen. I, I would assume that that was supposed to be Princess Elizabeth. The idea being that they expected the British team to win. So you would want a prominent royal to present the medals to mm-hmm. the British team, mm-hmm. but yeah, I saw that and I was and I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if that's supposed to be Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So I, I, since we both had that thought, that's probably what they were going for. I bet, yeah. But you know what? The trope that they didn't do is the whole evil British team. Like they really didn't go into the British side. Like they didn't even deal with them. They just kind of were on the field and right. playing dirty, you know, playing dirty and being thuggish, you know, but they really didn't. We didn't really get to know any of the players on the British side. And, yeah, you know, were- I was fine with that. And it was funny without it. You didn't need to humanize them at all because it really was about India and their experience at the games. Right. Benson, who was the the obnoxious aristocrat, Mm -hmm. and he kind of filled that role for Mm -hmm. like in in Chariots of Fire, where they made Charlie Paddock an absolute jerk. Right. Right. And it was it felt heavy handed, Mm -hmm. whereas this felt like, well, we need to have. The, Somebody, the aristocratic jerk, mm-hmm. drinking his champagne and you know making his <laughs> Mountbatten joke, <laughs> but it was it was lightly sprinkled in. Mm-hmm. It was not heavily spooned on, which. Was but it well- was really it was really interesting though. I kind of looked back at the Olympics and the British Indian team slash Indian team. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The British Indian team won. Six medals in six gold medals in field hockey. I believe I was looking at it online before I, I went to bed really late last night and I was trying to look it up, but the they had won a number of gold medals, I think at least four as the British team. Okay, so they won 28 
32 and 36 as British India. Okay. And then they, I think they won another three as. And then India. they won 48, 52, 56, 64, and 80. So technically they've won seven, technically seven golds for their country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are one of the big success stories in Indian Olympic history. Yeah. And, you know, and and for me, I don't know much about field hockey. So it was kind of neat to watch some of the, the action on the field to see, you know, some of that. I mean, they didn't really give us much in terms of the ins and outs of field hockey in the show i mean it didn't need it but it was interesting nonetheless to see you know them you know gently caressing their sticks you know and you know just just the different things you know what they would do instead of a face-off they called it a bully off huh did you notice that stick click yeah Mm -hmm. and i wanted to look into i forgot to look into that but uh i wonder if they still call it hockey though too Mm -hmm. to a certain degree but do they call it, they don't call it a bully off. Probably no. not. No, it's just I don't a think so. similar thing, but the terminology was interesting. But I did think that the the action scenes were really good. And it was obvious that the actors had trained a lot to mm-hmm. learn how to play so well. Yeah, you wonder if they had to specifically train to look like a field hockey player or did they play as kids? I mean, because of their rich history and their success, was it something that, you know, in grade school, everybody's going to pick up a stick and just start, you know, playing, you know, like 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 their hero. Or football in the Mm -hmm. United States is everybody playing Mm -hmm. field hockey, soccer, cricket. Mm -hmm. That's just the sports that that Indian kids are playing Mm -hmm. in schools. And I, I have a feeling it is. Probably. Yeah. All right. Anything to wrap it up? Oh, I thought it was really interesting that they ended with Tapandas saying a certain phrase. And he said the phrase, Vande Mataram. And I looked it up because I was like, oh, I got to know what this means. (laughs) Because they didn't translate it in the subtitles. And so I looked around a little bit and it's, and loosely translated, it says, I bow to the mother, or it means like he's, he's commenting on the motherland. So basically it just kind of tied everything in from, like we were saying before, the beginning sequence where, you know, he's taking that flag because they weren't allowed to, you know, voice themselves and show themselves as these proud Indian people And then finally, they were able to showcase themselves and do this for their motherland, you know. And so I thought that was a really neat way to end it. Agreed. Excellent. Well, this was so much fun to watch. I'm so glad we did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's on tap next time? So next up on our film list is The Other Side of the Mountain, which is a ski story. So, which is something I've, I, I did watch it a, a long time ago. So it'll be really interesting. Once again, I think we've done this before where we're like, okay, we've saw it as kids or just earlier in our lives. And now it's like, okay, does it measure up to the way we enjoyed it or thought about it, you know, back then? And how do we think, how, how does it age? Let's see, let's figure it out. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. It ages like the men in gold. <laughs> We can only hope. <laughs> Without their shirts on. <laughs> All right.
right, Fran. Thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate it. Hope you have a, a great Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we will talk to you soon. Yes, stay well, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fran. Fran will be back in February for our conversation about the other side of the mountain, so you've got time to watch it and let us know what you think. Or time to watch more Bollywood films, That's which is what right. I have been doing. <laughs> have you? I have. This is like a whole new world. We're going to have a new podcast about all these Bollywood movies I've been watching. <laughs> I have been having so much fun, you know, because you were stuck in quarantine where we can't be with friends and the holidays are coming up and I've been feeling really crummy and I put on a Bollywood movie and it is just solve for the soul. Do you want to hear even more of our discussions with your favorite guests? You can when you become a Patreon member, support the show and get bonus audio every month. Make your Shook Flastani citizenship official at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And your donations go a long way to helping us keep this show afloat. There are a lot of extra expenses and uh they cover them and we're hoping to get more donations to offer you more products like transcripts of shows. So thank you to everyone who's donated. And if you've been on the fence or need a holiday gift, check out patreon.com slash flame alive pod. Speaking of Shook Flistan, let's go over there. Welcome to Shook Flistan. Sad news from our uh, Paralympian, John Register. His wife is in the hospital with COVID-19. So uh, she's not breathing well, And but they're hoping that she can maybe come home by this weekend. But uh, we are thinking of him and his family, and we hope for a speedy recovery. Alice, we need you home. I know, that's really sad. It's really shocking. You know, but it is the way of things right now. Moving on to some better news, Aaron Jackson is on the 2020-2021 Board of Directors for USA Roller Sports and is serving as an elected athlete. She also had an amazing result this week. Oh! So, also this week for Aaron at the Salty Cup, as they've been calling it, they've also been referring to it as the COVID Cup. It's the World Cup Simulation Series. She uh, won the 500 meters. Oh, good for her. Yeah, beating Brittany Bowe and Kimmy Getz. Wow, that is impressive. So, oh, good for you. Good for you, Erin. I've also seen, speaking of winter sports, that Claire Egan on uh, Instagram was uh, showing off her new uniform. And she is in Finland for the first half of her, or the first quarter, first month of their uh, European season. Yes, she's much happier this year with the uh, uniforms. I guess last year they had some weird, like orange, purple. They were very. They were supposed to be red, white, and bluish, but it was more pinkish than red. This year is much more traditional with stars and blue legs, mm -hmm. and and she knew how to walk a runway. That's for sure. That's for in a sure. hotel room. <laughs> also in winter sports, Alex Diebold has been named to the U.S. snowboard team, and Chloe Kim is returning to competition after a year at Princeton University. So good for both of them. I'm excited to see them compete this year. Good luck to bobsledders Lauren Gibbs and Josh Williamson and skeleton racer Leah Fair as USA bobsled and skeleton has its national team selection races this weekend. The women's bobsled and skeleton national teams will be named on November 20th, and the men's team will be named on uh, December 15th because they'll be doing the four-man races 
uh, in December. So fingers crossed for all of them. Leah's had some, uh, she had a little video on Insta of her just zipping down the track on her skeleton. So I'm hoping she's had a good year of training and is making that next step. What's been fun is Elena Myers-Taylor has been back on the track with baby Nico and Aww. Lauren was posting when they first got back in the sled together. Aww. You know, reunion of the Pyeongchang uh, medalists. So that was pretty exciting to watch. That is exciting. And the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant, as well as Jason in the flesh, are in the new wrestling movie called The, Re- the Last Champion, which is about a former wrestling champ who's seeking redemption following a scandal that cost him his Olympic medal. So it's uh, gone straight to d- digital delivery because of the pandemic, but you'll be able to get it on December 8th. And I know for sure it's on iTunes. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So very excited. Jason's a movie star. Maybe he'll go to Bollywood next. <laughs> I want to see Jason doing the dance. <laughs> I want to see Jason's reaction when you tell Jason we want to see him do the dance. Uh, Let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. Chibok and Coatsy have gone to Tokyo. That sounds like a road movie. It does. It really does. (laughs) Yes, time for the IOC president and the head of the commission for the Tokyo Games to go to Tokyo and have meetings with the organizing committee and the new prime minister and the mayor of Tokyo. So there was a lot going on. And first off, everyone is committed to making the games great. So IE, we're committed to making sure the games go on. And as you like to know, they're going to have a full COVID toolbox. Oh my goodness. And I believe there may be some needles in this toolbox. <laughs> Hopefully, vaccine needles. Yeah, not also- doping needles. <laughs> and uh, T-Bak also gave Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister, the Olympic order in gold, which is the IOC's highest honor. Now, uh, the Olympic, uh, the IOC Instagram account posted pictures of T-Bak at the stadium. Mm-hmm. And it was an empty stadium and he's standing there with a mask and it, it was quite moving pictures. But what struck me is the seats are different colors randomly. Yeah. So it looks like there are people in the seat. Yes. I was really unsettled the first time I looked at the picture saying, wait, are there people there? No, the seats are just randomly different colors. Which I think is brilliant design because if the stadium is not so full at an event, it still looks full. And especially with COVID, I expect these stadiums not to be full, most likely. I don't think they're going to be allowed to be as full as we expected them to be. And it wasn't designed after COVID. It was designed no, in right. before, but they were thinking. Exactly. Exactly. So um, a lot of things came out of this uh, meeting stuff. Uh, Inside the Games was reporting that they want to try to limit athletes' times in the village. So Coatsy said that the Australian National Committee was planning on sending athletes to the village four or five days before their competition starts, and they'd come home one or two days after their event is done. So no more staying through the whole time. I think that's a little easier for Australia because they're probably on a similar time zone and wouldn't have to do so much or overcome jet lag so much. But I imagine that other people will be asked to 
make their stay shorter than you originally would have thought of. Well, cer- certainly on the post competition end, because the right. pre, you need to get there several days ahead of time to recover from that trip, recover but, and prepare and get get the lay of the land. Right, but once you're done, they're kicking you out. Yeah, yeah, which is going to be interesting to see what the opening and the closings look like mm-hmm. in terms of are we going we're not going to have all those athletes on the infield that we're used to right so they also talked about uh that uh, among the uh, this will be kind of emerging some stories from inside the games and the yomiuri shimbun and kyoto news but they talked about the fact that the number of officials attending the opening ceremonies would be limited to six. And this applies to both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And if you were part of a, you were from a country that had a small number of athletes and there would not be any athletes in the parade, because sometimes they don't go with their competition is right away. You would not be able to fill your slot with officials as has been happening at other games. So we're going to see some countries with flag bearers only probably which is interesting and like you said closing ceremonies they didn't mention that in any of the stories but we know closing ceremonies just kind of let them run on the field all together on mass and intermingle that's the key part of the closing ceremonies it's one big party of athletes who've come together and created this wonderful celebration of sport i don't see that happening and if they're having people leave quickly afterwards so all the people from the first 10 days of competition all the swimmers mm-hmm. the gymnasts they're all going to be gone right so it's basically going to be like the track and field people and the soccer players <laughs> yeah everything that ends uh, you know ends with and their the marathon <laughs> hey we have not had an entry to the marinovella in months i know and i'm dying to know what's going on there hopefully we'll get an entry soon well maybe coatsy will deliver gosh i hope so but you know if we're back on the parade of nations at least in the opening ceremonies the tokyo 2020 president yoshiro mori said that organizers would have to consider the number of people involved in the parade but said no athlete could be deprived of their right to participate in it so they'd have athletes at least and it's one of those, like, I, I bet they have to make the decision. Do you march or do you not march? And if you're not marching, well, we're not going to let just your officials go out. And if they're not letting everybody arrive, you'll have a good number of athletes who aren't even there yet. Right, right. You know, again, the track and field, the second week athletes mm-hmm. may not even be there. Right. Which is going to be interesting. Maybe not so much for, I don't know why this popped into my head, but not, not so much for 2022, I bet, but I bet for 2024, people are going to go at the parade of nations. Why are there so many people on the field? You know, why, why are there only two athletes from this country, but there's like a group of 10. That just seems so strange. I know. Cause if you, if you see Tokyo and, and I can't imagine Beijing is going to be so different. We're not going to be back to normal by Beijing. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I can't point. imagine. I mean, so it'll be it'll be Paris or even Los Angeles before things get back to what we're used to. Right. But because they're doing all this cost cutting, will the opening ceremonies by the time we get to Los Angeles just be so 
different. That's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of evolution again. You know, the 90s were a big time of change Mm -hmm. in the Olympic movement. I think the 20s now will be another thing that we'll point to, to say, oh, yeah, this shifted again. On vaccine news, T-Box said that the organization would encourage athletes who were competing to have a vaccine, but would not, it stressed it would not be a requirement for getting into the games. And they have keep talking about the fact that having a vaccine is not a silver bullet for the games taking place. They're going to happen regardless. Uh, they are talking with the vaccine uh, manufacturers and other health experts, but have said that they would not jump in line ahead of anybody else who needs a vaccine more than they do. So that'll be interesting because we are getting close to having vaccines and how many doses those companies can churn out will be a big factor in who who gets it when. And so I'm, I would imagine the IOC not super high on the list. To be quite honest, right, first and, responders and, and each country is going to have to make its own list. Right. Right. Each country's health officials will have to make that determination and manufacturing of these medications will determine worldwide. And, and just because they're approved here in the United States doesn't mean they're approved in the EU, doesn't mean they're approved mm-hmm. in, in Japan itself. So we're going to see a lot of things happening at very different paces. And what's a priority for one country may or may not be a priority in -hmm. another country, depending on their culture. You know, is it super important for kids to be back physically in school buildings? Well, in some places it may be, and in some places it may not be. Because they're able to do remote easily and other places can't. So then kids may be more important than working adults. And so it's going to be interesting just as a, a world to see how this pans out. But I can't imagine Joe athlete jumping the line. But in some countries, they might. Yeah, it depends. It depends. Uh, the IOC did say it would look into assisting athletes in poorer countries with covering those vaccination costs. The uh, Yomiyori Shimbun reported that the IOC would cover vaccine costs. And I wasn't quite sure if that was like blanket, like we'll cover the cost for any athletes or what. But there is talk of the IOC helping out there. So that's the second time this month that Mm -hmm. they've talked about providing more money to athletes because of COVID. Yeah. The Kyoto News is reporting that Japan is planning to exempt foreign visitors for next summer's Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics from its 14-day quarantine requirement if they are from countries or regions with relatively fewer novel coronavirus cases. <laughs> well, that's not us. That's not us. I can tell you that. I'm just like, New Zealand, <laughs> probably Taiwan, not Vietnam, us. I think. Not the UK. How is no. Canada doing? I don't know. They had a, a spike in cases after Thanksgiving. There so. you go. And if uh, this is approved, so the government's going to decide by next spring whether or not to permit overseas spectators to attend the summer games. So you got a few more months yet. And if they are approved, visitors would also be approved to use public transportation. So I think when they talk about that, they probably have to take a lot into consideration because there will be a lot of people crowded onto trains 
during the games. So, and I wonder if they would factor in the vaccines. Like, would they only allow vaccinated foreign travelers? That's a good question. That's a good Or if you're from a certain country or region, <coughs> U.S., <coughs> maybe you have to have a vaccine before you come in because the, the virus is just too much out of control in your country. Or the enough people haven't got, I don't know. The government's going to drop guidelines for spectators that will include requiring them to wear face masks, carry thorough disinfection policies, ban them from talking too loudly. And it's looking at punitive measures for violations, such as denying entry or ejection from the venues. So that'll be interesting to follow and see what happens. The exemption that they're thinking about would not apply to torch relay runners coming from overseas. Oh, I didn't know there were any torch relay runners I'm coming from overseas. I'm guessing there are. I, I didn't think there would be either, but there apparently are. Huh. Maybe it's former Olympians or sponsors or something like that. Right. Or, I mean, it could be Japanese who don't necessarily live right. in Japan, you know, especially former athletes. Right. So they so, will still have to quarantine? They'll have to abide by the government's entry regulations at the time of their arrival. But well, my guess would... is because it's because because the torch relay will start off at the end of March, so they can't. That's a little too soon, right? I would say. Think. Yeah. The Japan Times has reported that Tokyo 2020 is going to expand use of facial recognition technology to help prevent the spread of COVID. So they were going to have facial recognition technology anyway to ensure security identification of personnel involved in the games and media and they'd also use it to detect suspicious persons but now they're going to record spectators faces and body surface temperatures and see if they're wearing masks so if you're not wearing a mask and think you're getting away with it you know well i have cameras a watching how are you going to do facial recognition if you're requiring everybody to wear a mask? That's a good question, but I wonder if the technology is good enough to just go off of eyes and forehead and hair. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> but well, considering how much I play with my bangs just when we're recording, <laughs> that and we already know that their whatever their facial recognition software, I would be tagged as a suspicious person. <laughs> so it's just as well that, you know, we're not al allowing foreign visitors. Their hair is messy. We're going to kick them out. So I am just doomed. It yeah. was just as well. I never planned to go to Tokyo because <laughs> they're just finding so many ways that they will not allow me in the country. And they are probably smart to do it. They plan to use the data to help prevent cluster infections in case somebody's found to be infected, so to help with contract tracing. And they're also thinking about placing cameras at the entrance to athletes' villages and training camps to record the dates and times athletes entered and left. And, of course, they're going to get rid of the data after the games. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> Didn't we just have a story about the Russians hacking the Tokyo oh, computers. Right. The, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens with this stuff. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Uh, let's move on to some other IOC news. The IOC and Airbnb were honored with the Deal of the Year Award from the Sport Industry Group. 
and uh, that's celebrating the partnership, which has launched a lot of online experiences with um, Olympians and Paralympians, and they had a five-day virtual festival in July. Um, so uh, they thought this was a very innovative approach to a partnership. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Airbnb would like to go public here in the United States. And so they filed their S1 report, which is the government filing that you have to make when you want to be a public company that tells all about the company and its financials and uh, how they're doing. So Ben Johnson, I believe, who I think writes for Sports Business Daily, he's he's one of the, the big sports journalists. He pulled out on Twitter, he, he pulled out what Airbnb said about the IOC partnership. And let, let me read this quote. Our brand marketing efforts include a variety of online and offline marketing distribution channels. Our brand marketing efforts are expensive and may not be cost-effective or successful. For example, in November 2019, we announced a partnership with the International Olympic Committee for nine years to cover the next five Olympic Games. The COVID-19 pandemic has delayed the 2020 Games, and the continued uncertainty around COVID-19 and other geopolitical factors could undermine our ability to realize the value of the partnership. If our competitors spend increasingly more on marketing brand marketing efforts, we may not be able to maintain and grow traffic to our platform. So they're already saying that this deal might not help them along with COVID-19. And they also noted that in June 2018, a new law went into effect in Japan to legalize the short-term rental of primary and secondary residencies for up to 180 days a year. And so when that law was in implemented, a lot of listings fell off of Airbnb because they weren't going to be compliant. Yeah, because I think I imagine it's like the and the issue that a lot of cities have with Airbnb is that people will buy apartments and just nonstop rent them out on Airbnb. Right. And then you can't get an apartment to actually live in. Right. So Airbnb has said that the rate of listings has recovered as of December 31st, 2019, and they're going to continue to work with Japanese authorities on supporting the Tokyo Olympics in 2021 and reviewing this national law starting next year. And I would also suspect that, for example, let's say you own a duplex, you live upstairs, mm -hmm. you rent out downstairs. I wouldn't want to be renting out downstairs during COVID-19 mm -hmm. and having this parade of strangers coming through. Right. I mean, it's one thing if it's a totally separate residence, but if you're renting out part of your home, a room in your home, a you're not, you're not going to want to do that because it's not safe. And it's probably not appealing to the people who would come in because are you cleaning everything as well as you should? I would think Airbnb right now would be less appealing to a traveler because you're reliant on just this random person with no oversight like you would in a hotel. Like hotels, I mean, yes, I know they're not the, always the cleanliest, but at least there's some oversight to it. Mm -hmm. So I can see Airbnb being less appealing in this environment on top of the fact that so many fewer people are going to travel. We don't even know if foreigners are going to be allowed in Tokyo. Right. But I thought that was very interesting because, you, you know, you always want to know how are these partnerships going to work? And especially as you look ahead to Paris, who is not happy about Airbnb know, maybe this is just another little small entry into the hotel novella. And then it's official. 
the IOC has entered into a continuous dialogue with Salt Lake City to host the 2030 Winter Games. Reports gamesbids.com. I don't know how I feel about this. Really? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it would be amazing. It's close. It's convenient. It's been a long time since America has hosted a Winter Games. North America would have been 20 years because it would have been the last one in would be in Vancouver. Yeah, but that would also because Salt Lake City was the first games that we shared. Mm -hmm. And then to go back there would make me feel really old. (laughs) It's like there would be enough time would have passed for them to go back to the same city. (laughs) So it'll be interesting to follow that one because I know Salt Lake City has done a lot of work on maintaining their legacy and maintaining their venues because it is a big training center for a lot of sports speed skating is out there all the time and they've, they've already got the bobsled and loose track and they've got a lot of good skiing so it'll be interesting to and see they did, they did a great job the first time around it was did, a very successful did. games right after a horrible time because that was the games after first games after 9-11 and they had months to put in some kind of security measures and and that was the games that Mitt Romney had to come in and save right because of the uh bribery scandals right <laughs> well you know what I can the, the good news about this version of Salt Lake City I will not have to miss it because I'm pregnant <laughs> like I had to there the first time <laughs> there you go so we'll be out there recording live get your tickets not, now not pregnant <laughs> can guarantee you that. (laughs) Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Be like Book Club Claire and let us know what you thought of Gold because she really liked it as well. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Hey, thank you to listener Patrick for the lovely voicemail we got from him. We really appreciated that. Uh, Next week is Thanksgiving in the U.S., so we will be sharing an all-author lightning round episode as we go out to Music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. They're just finding so many ways that they will not allow me in the country, and they are probably smart to do it.